Well, good morning, church. Maybe seated. I don't know if you caught that first announcement that Pastor Nick mentioned, but there's a couple of big tables in the courtyard out there. They're empty right now, but during the last song of the service this morning, we'll have the middle school students and the high school students dismissed to go collect the, uh, the, the baked goods that some, some of you, many of you have provided. Uh, those are all to be sold so the students can have some of their camp costs cut back a little bit. And we actually have um, a lot to go over this morning. And so if we go a little long, hopefully that might turn into you being really hungry and then willing to spend a lot for those baked goods that are out there. We could use the help. Some of our families are pretty big, and they're sending multiple kids to the retreat this year. So anything that you can do would be greatly appreciated and will be a blessing to the families of our congregation. So if you have your Bible ready, please do open it up to the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. Yes, sirs are coming forward with Bibles and pencils. If you have one, they also have an outline for you. If you would like to take advantage of that, just so you can kind of see the direction that I'm hoping to take us. We are continuing verse by verse through this important chapter of Holy Scripture, uh, the resurrection chapter. It's, it's been said before that Christianity is the religion of the resurrection. We are resurrected to a new life at the moment of our regeneration, the moment of our salvation. There's a resurrection that happens. We are raised to new life in Christ. And then we also anticipate with great joy a future resurrection, the resurrection of our earthly bodies when Christ Jesus comes to consummate his kingdom, which he is presently reigning over. He and all those who are united to him through the faith that he supplies to us are actually presently reigning over. And he, Christ himself, is even the first fruits in that resurrection, already, have a, already having a resurrected earthly and glorified body himself. He is king forever, as we just sang about a few moments ago in that song, God the Uncreated One. And remember, there is some of the things that the Apostle Paul has been saying here, that there, there is no gospel, actually, if we lose the resurrection, if we deny the resurrection. No good news if Christ didn't raise on the third day, thereby defeating death and securing salvation for all those who would believe in him, all those chosen in him. And we need to be well acquainted with this chapter, friends. The theology of it, the arguments of it, the, and the warnings in it. Because the resurrection is such a central aspect to our faith. So let's read our passage and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word this morning. This is the reading of the Word of the Lord, beginning at verse 29 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with the beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. From your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And that ends the reading of God's holy and inspired and sufficient word. Let's pray and ask Him to bless our time as we study it. Our Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you for giving to us special revelation, for giving to us your holy word. And we know that this test, this text that we have before us this morning is difficult. Uh, it is not easy, Lord, and we know that apart from grace, apart from your mercy in our life, that we wouldn't even be able to understand the simplest of texts, the true and the right meaning of them at least, uh, beyond the, the clear words that are said. And so we depend upon you, especially this morning, Holy Spirit, to give us understanding. Help us to be conformed to Christ. Help us to be conformed to what is revealed in your word. Let us be meek and humble. And we pray that you would guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that is a, a little different than our previous passages in this chapter that we've been going over, isn't it? 
Uh, it's still the same end being pursued. The apostle is defending and arguing for the resurrection. He's, he's went over how it is essential to the gospel and how Christ was witness at the resurrection. He's covered the theology of the resurrection and how Christ's resurrection actually precedes ours. But this is different. In this important paragraph that we have for this morning, he's not explaining the theology of the resurrection. He's going to do that again, by the way, in, in the verses after this. But the apostle is now on the offensive over this doctrine. For this paragraph, he changes the way that he's going about correcting them. He's bringing the weight of their bad theology to bear upon them in their actions. Really, it's an ad hominem attack. In other words, it's an attack against the person rather than the position that they hold. You see that, I hope. And I know that in our cultural context today, it is almost illegal, it is almost sacrilegious to direct an argument at the person rather than the argument that they, that they hold. But you see at least that here it shows us that it's at least biblically prudent to sometimes do that. Sometimes, and this requires wisdom and humility, but sometimes it's the right thing to do, to also direct your argument against the individual and not just the position that they're holding. It's not always wrong to do that, specifically when the position so impacts the person at the level of their actions. And you know, we've been saying this for a long time here. Your theology impacts how you live. Christianity is not some theoretical theory. It's not some theoretical religion. It's not something that just exists in our heads or in some spiritual plane. Some live like that to their detriment, but that's not what Christianity fundamentally is. It is a living faith involving the whole person, body and soul. And our theology impacts how we live. And then sometimes it's necessary then that we get a little personal with each other. Not out of ungodly anger, but out of Christian love for each other so that we would urge each other to repentance and to fidelity, to faithfulness. It's hard to do this kind of thing. It's awkward, but it must remain an option for us. In the letter to the Hebrews, when the author is instructing us to have a, a biblical form of assurance of our faith, it's in chapter 10, it's that section where he admonishes us to not forsake gathering with each other as some are, are prone to do. And that section is related to this assurance we're supposed to have or, or, we, or this, insurance, this assurance we should lack if we do neglect gathering. There in verse 24 in chapter 10, he says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And the point that I'm wanting to make this morning is that an ad hominem argument should be something in consideration. It's a way to stir up people to love and good works. It doesn't mean we should always re resort to it, but it should be something that's up for consideration. It should remain an option among other good options for stirring up each other to love and to good works. Because certainly, believing the right thing is a loving and good work. It's worshiping God properly. And the first and greatest commandment, the first table of the moral law instructs us here specifically, the first four commandments, in other words, they inform us that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He is going from theological arguments, which demand that we consider the doctrine of the resurrection, its validity, its necessity, and its importance, and he changes gears a bit here to show the inconsistencies of those in the Corinthian congregation that are denying the resurrection. In other words, there are people doing things in Corinth, and the apostle is doing things himself, as we see, that clearly indicate there must be a resurrection, and yet some are teaching and believing it doesn't happen. And teaching and believing that it doesn't happen isn't loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so he's wanting to stir them up to good works now, to rightly believing about the Lord, and he does it through not attacking their position, but actually going at the person. His argument is easy to follow here. You can see this on the outline. Uh, first, he comments on something they did or were doing, baptism for the dead. Then he uses himself as an example and makes the point that he is always in danger, always in danger for the sake of Christ. And then he encourages a good company. And then finally, the section ends with an exhortation and a rebuke. So the first thing he mentions in the paragraph is a doozy, really. I mean, who has read this passage? Who has read verse 29 and been like, oh, well, that, that's easy. <laughs> I know exactly what he's, what he's meaning there. Even when Pastor Nick informed me that, that this, would be, this passage would be falling on me the next time when it, when it was my turn to preach, it was preempted almost with like an apology. So uh, this, is a, this is a difficult text. 
And I look at what the apostle writes here at verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on the behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? What does that mean? The Apostle Paul certainly knew what he meant when he wrote this. He would be right to think that the Corinthian congregation was well aware of what he is speaking of here. But to be honest, I don't really know for certain what is going on in Corinth at this time, at this occasion, that is causing him to say this. It's not something I want to be dogmatic about. Now, this has been something that essentially the church has agreed to disagree about over the last 2,000 years. One commentator has counted that there are 200 interpretations of this single verse. And really what that ends up doing is it boils down to 40 serious arguments and then there's all these modifications, these little nuances on some of those arguments that translate to almost like 200 different interpretations of this one verse. Now, but whatever this text actually means, it usually falls into two categories. Number one, that the Corinthian church uniquely practiced vicarious baptism. And we'll explain what that is in just a moment. And number two, that baptized on behalf of the dead or baptized for the dead is a phrase not implying vicarious baptism. That's understand, easy enough to understand, I think. So vicarious baptism or baptism by proxy is the idea or doctrine that says someone who isn't present can be baptized through representation of another person being baptized in their place. So take that idea and associate it then with people who are dead. And so you have people going into the baptismal waters, not for themselves, not for their own proclamation of God's promise in baptism, but they're doing it for someone who is no longer living. Presumably someone who they thought was a believer at least, because it would certainly mean nothing for them to be baptized for someone who wasn't a believer in the first place. It would just be getting wet then for them or something, I guess. And so it's possible that when the Apostle pens verse 29 here, he's aware of people in Corinth getting baptized, not because of their own or in association with their own profession of faith, but in place of people who didn't get the opportunity for it. It's done vicariously. Some ancestor, some family member, some friend that they knew. Whatever the reason for the Corinthian congregation's practice of it, the point of mentioning this as an argument is clear, and that is this. If Christ has not been resurrected and there is no bodily resurre resurrection at the end of the age, then why are you people being baptized for those who have already died and won't be resurrected? If there's no resurrection for believers, then what benefit does a vicarious or by proxy baptism do for someone who is already dead and unbaptized, if they're already dead and won't raise? Uh, Gerhardus Voss notes that those who hold to this proxy baptism believed that it gave an advantage to one on the day of resurrection. And I think there must be some truth to that. Otherwise, why would the Apostle Paul bring it up at all if that is what's being talked about here, if this is vicarious baptism? But it could also be the case that some in Corinth are taking part of this proxy baptism, which implies a, a benefit in the resurrection, and yet they're still denying the resurrection themselves. They're just doing it because it's supposedly a spiritual thing to do. And so these Corinthians, as we have seen before, you know, they're all about a theology of glory. They like the high and the so-called spiritual things, and so they are participating in these so-called vicarious baptisms, these baptisms on behalf of the dead, which goes against the doctrine of no resurrection they're holding to. And so Paul's using it then as an argument to point that out and to, to expose their foolishness. So I get that this verse sounds like vicarious baptism, a plain reading sounds like that, but it's at least possible that what seems plain isn't actually plain, especially considering the rest of Scripture. If we have read through the Bible any amount of times, really, even maybe even not a whole lot, you know that this verse doesn't sit well with the rest of the corpus that we have on the doctrine of baptism, on the surface at least. It seems out of place. It's not consistent with the practice and the instruction that we have for baptism elsewhere, if he's meaning vicarious baptism. Nowhere else in Scripture do we see people being instructed, instructed to be baptized in the stead of someone else. When John was baptizing people and preparing the way for the Messiah, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins we read in Mark 1. It was for the individual being baptized, not for someone who wasn't there. 
Then John decreases that Christ might increase. And at that point, uh, Jesus and his disciples start baptizing more and more people, signifying that baptism is something for living followers of Christ to do. And when you get to the Great Commission, the instruction is to make disciples of all the nations, and we're told to baptize these disciples, and it's joined with teaching them to observe all that Jesus has commanded them. And so there's no mention of getting baptized for the dead, of course, in that, who, by the way, also couldn't do the second half of the Great Commission, right? These people who are dead, even if someone was being baptized on their behalf, these people who are dead can't then be taught to obey all that Christ has commanded. So there's just, there's just no mention of vicarious baptism anywhere in Scripture. Well, I guess other than here in, the, in this epistle of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. The rest of the epistles mention nothing about it as well. There's just simply nothing in the Word of God that would instruct us or the church in Corinth to do this. And yet, this one verse exists here, and the church in Corinth could have been, presumably were, baptizing living people for people that have already died. It's, it's strange. And it's more complex because the Apostle Paul has not been shy with correcting this congregation with their doctrinal and their practical errors. He's confronted them already for forming factions behind their preferred teachers. He's admonished them for allowing immorality to run rampant and to have no um, correction offered against it. They were even being so immoral that the world, the unsaved world around them, shamed them for their actions. He's... Um, He's talked to them about not dealing with conflict properly. He spoke to them about marriage, head coverings, food offered to idols, and even the Lord's Supper. And now he's dealing with the topic of the resurrection as the most important issue in the congregation, among other important issues. And in conjunction with that, he mentions this baptism issue, but he doesn't correct it. But it does seem clear that the apostle isn't actually endorsing this act. Did you notice? He says, otherwise... What do people mean by being baptized? This isn't something that he has taught them and instructed them in. This is something that people, some people in Corinth, are doing. And the church isn't preventing it. Perhaps in the apostles' mind, even, even though he didn't teach vicarious baptism, their practice of it is a convenient means of pointing out their error on the resurrection. And so even though the apostle doesn't condemn the practice of vicarious baptisms or baptism on behalf of the dead, it needs to be said that baptism on behalf of the dead is not a Christian practice. It's not, ironically and very strangely, it's not even a pagan practice. There are no pagan religions that baptize people on behalf of the dead. This isn't something that was like syncretism with the world and the church. This is a unique heresy related to Christianity. It is simply put, this is heresy infiltrating the church. It's a magical or as Charles Hodge puts it, a superstitious view of the sacrament or ordinance that finds no agreement with the rest of the teaching in Scripture. It doesn't find any support in extra-biblical literature either. There's no writing about the church endorsing it in the first century at, the whole, at all. Nevertheless, there have been heretical groups that have seen this verse and built doctrines and practices on it. The Marcionites of the late 2nd to 4th century. Uh, Marcion was an influential teacher who diverged from orthodoxy at a number of different places, actually. Well, this group adopted this superstitious view, based off of this verse, of course, that a person who was in the process of joining the church but died before being baptized could then receive the benefits of baptism by someone who was living, getting baptized in their stead, in their place. Uh, what, what did they think they would receive? I'm not really sure. Uh, baptism is a means of grace that the Lord uses to encourage and sanctify the church here and now. But after a person has died, well, it's not going to do anything for them. There's nothing in Scripture, at least, that would say it would. Uh, you're probably aware of the fact that the, this practice of baptizing on behalf of the dead is administered in Mormon temples today. Uh, they cite this verse as an endorsement of that practice, although Mormons, honestly, they don't seem to be incredibly concerned with exegesis of Scripture. And they actually believe that baptism is a condition for salvation. So listen to their own teaching on this matter. This is from the churchofjesuschrist.org. And so they, it says there, right at the top on, on this specific doctrinal issue, it says, baptism is essential to the salvation of all who have lived on the earth. Essential to salvation. 
Many people, however, have died without being baptized. Others were baptized without proper authority. Because God is merciful, he has prepared a way for all people to receive the blessing of baptism. By performing proxy baptisms in behalf of those who have lived, church members offer these blessings to deceased ancestors. Individuals can choose to accept or reject what has been done in their behalf. Again, the Mormon church isn't very concerned with exegesis because what is all that? For Mormons, the, the blessing mentioned... The benefit received in baptism on behalf of the dead is the potential, is a potential salvation itself. They are busy getting baptized on behalf of their ancestors so that if the deceased person gets notified of it, they can accept it and then they can be welcomed into heaven. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur calls this a bizarre and foolish heresy, and we must agree with him in what, in what the rest of Scripture says on this matter. Scriptures are very clear, friends. The only vicarious righteousness is that which Jesus has purchased by his obedient life for the church. There is no such thing as you doing something, some good work, some sacrament, and then having it result in the benefit of someone else, especially the salvation of someone else who has already died. That is superstition. That is treating the sacrament as if it's magic. There is no such thing as salvation after you're dead even. Man is appointed to die but once, and then comes the judgment, Hebrews 9.27. And yet, when it comes to the Corinthians here, there is no correction on this practice. Not one that he's offered, at least. He just simply states that they are doing it, and he uses their practice of it as an argument to believe in the resurrection. Maybe this is one of those things that he was planning on speaking to them in person about that he mentions at the end of chapter 11. I'm not sure. But many have taken the fact that he doesn't admonish them and correct them for this superstitious and magical view of an ordinance of the New Covenant church community. They've taken this as a clue to endorse the idea that Corinth wasn't actually doing vicarious baptisms here. Because if they were, it would just seem almost unimaginable that the Apostle Paul wouldn't say something about this, since he's been so readily willing to confront them about everything else that they've been doing wrong. <clears throat> And so vicarious baptisms are a heretical notion derived from misunderstanding this text, but that's not what the text is actually saying. Gerhardus Voss, who's a pastor and professor in the 19th and 20th century, explains how some of the Reformers understood this verse. So John Calvin and other believers argued that this was in reference to people being rushed to baptism on their deathbeds. So they were baptized for themselves, actually, in a state of near death. So they take the words baptized for the dead to mean letting oneself be baptized in the state of dying. So people who were deathly sick, people who were as good as dead, in other words, would undergo this ordeal to be baptized because they have a high view of the sacrament of baptism. They want to be baptized. And they would do that even though they were at death's door and not in good physical condition to be baptized. The idea being, you know, why go through with the sacrament? Why treat it with such importance if when you'd be dead in a matter of hours is the end? If there's no resurrection afterward, then just die in peace without the effort. I, I understand the point, but I would agree with Voss where he says that the words of the text don't really say this. It's, it's a stretch by Calvin and others who are in agreement with him. Luther and others saw this phrase, baptism on behalf of the dead, to be in, in reference to a baptismal location. Uh, the word translated as for, so baptism for the dead, the word translated as for could actually be translated as above. And so for Luther then, he felt like the Corinthians had set up their baptismal on top of the graves of those who were deceased. Uh, the, the problem here, though, is that doesn't really make an argument for the resurrection at all. I mean, it's just, it just could be true, or maybe it's not. Uh, many other views have been offered, some of them more clear than others, but what is certainly clear is the New Testament, or even the Old Testament for that matter, never authorizes being baptized on behalf of or in the place of someone else who died without baptism. Further, the doctrines of baptism and resurrection are both clear in Scripture. Even though we have what we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 is obscure, the doctrines that Paul is speaking of, baptism and resurrection, those are, those are clear to us. A baptism, in part, reminds us of the pledge, the guarantee, the sign that we have that we will be raised with Christ. For one, 
as we've already briefly considered, vicarious baptism wasn't the teaching of Jesus on the matter. And it's not something the apostles would then teach, nor was it recorded in the book of Acts. And further, the idea would be especially foreign to the Apostle Paul, I think, because of how he observes a connectedness between baptism and the resurrection. That he sees a connectedness between these two doctrines. We saw this in our call to worship passage. And he says basically the same thing in the letter to the Colossians. Let's see that there. So turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Now I should say, the Apostle Paul isn't speaking of water baptism here. And the issue in Corinth would be over, if it's vicarious baptisms, it would be over water baptism. Here and in Romans 6, though, he's speaking of baptism of the Spirit, the new birth, the circumcision, circumcision of the heart, as he puts it here. So this is Colossians 2, 11 through 15. And let's just read this. It says, In him, meaning in Christ, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing, triumphing, triumphing over, them, over them in him. Amen and praise the Lord. So it's not water baptism that he's talking about here. It's not the new covenant sacrament, which he's speaking about specifically. But for us as Baptists especially, there's a connection here. Uh, I think we can see that the theological truths explained here inform how we even practice the sacrament, right? We put you under the water. We immerse you in the water fully so as to symbolize, so as to gospelize an image, as it were, of our spiritual union with Christ and his death. And so you under the water, symbolizing our burial with Christ, and then up out of the water, symbolizing our resurrection with Christ. Baptism precedes resurrection in Paul's formula. And then notice all the benefits proceeding from it. The benefits that we have in Christ, we are made alive with him. Our sins are forgiven. The record of debt has been set aside. It's been nailed to the cross. Christ has triumphed over all of his and all of our enemies. Soli Deo Gloria. It's wonderful. It's good news. And baptism isn't detached from these things. Paul's point in Romans and Colossians is that baptism precedes all those blessings. Baptism is a pledge. It's a guarantee. It's a promise of God about all the promises of the gospel. And he's, again, he's speaking of baptism in the Spirit here, the new birth, but that is typified in our water baptism. It's promised in our water baptism. Especially, that, or it's, it's a sign that is communicated in our water baptism. Especially that just as we were united to Christ with his death, so also we will be united to him in his resurrection by faith in the power of the Spirit in a resurrection like his when Jesus Christ returns. And so if we are rightly thinking about baptism, then we should also rightly be thinking about the resurrection. The, the first article of the 29th chapter of the Second London Baptist Confession says this. It says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ. To those baptized, it is a sign of their fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of their being grafted into him of remission of sins and of submitting themselves to God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So whatever it was that the Corinthian church was thinking of, or doing with their observance of baptism, it should always be pointing them, just as it always points us, to the theology behind that baptism. And the fact that they are baptizing at all, whether correctly or in error with vicarious baptism, it testifies to the reality of the resurrection. These things aren't separated. They should be, they should be seeing that. And so Paul is offering to them this correction, whether that means a vicarious baptism or whether he's trying to point out the connectivity between baptism and resurrection. They can't deny the resurrection and still be getting, having baptisms because those things are intimately and con connected and, jo and joined. The, the next line of reasoning for the apostle in defending the resurrection is to appeal to the life that he's lived. And this, thankfully, we have a lot more information on. This is much more straightforward to us, at least. We know about the suffering of the Apostle Paul. Again, we don't have to totally know 
what Paul is talking about in verse 29, but in verses 30 through 32, we have all kinds of information about the many ways in which Paul suffered deeply as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is the reason that he's bringing these things up is to sort of frame a question. Why would it make any sense, humanly speaking, according to human logic, for anyone to put themselves in this much danger if the resurrection for the dead were not real? His point is that he would be a fool to be living the life that he has been living if there is no resurrection. If there is no resurrection, if this life is all that we have, why on earth would anyone consider suffering to be a sane choice? Why wouldn't you just choose hedonism? Why wouldn't you just choose pleasure at any cost? On the flip side, if the resurrection from the dead is real, if it is true, if we will be raised up with Christ, then the most sane and the most rational thing we can do is to suffer for Christ's sake. The resurrection justifies the Christian living a life that could result in suffering. It's what Romans 8, 16 to 17 says. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. It depends on how you see the world. What do you know about the world? What do you think about the world? Do you see only this life or do you see another life to come? If this is all that you see, that changes things. Paul's point is that this life isn't all that he has. He has something that justifies the dangerous life that he has been living. Uh, so look at verse 30, here back in chapter 15. Why are we in danger in every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What if I gain, humanly speaking, human, humanly speaking, if I fought with the beast at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So you see what he says in verse 30. The, the apostle was a man, and those who he traveled with and ministered with were people who were in danger every hour. They lived lives of defined suffering and potential suffering for Christ. The epistles in the book of Acts spelled this out plainly. He even wrote four books of the Bible from jail after all. And so the apostle says essentially, if there is no resurrection, in effect, if the dead are not raised, if there is no future, then why are we always in danger at every hour? Why am I doing this? Because if the hope of because here this hope of resurrection, this hope of future life, this hope of future reward, the hope of future glory, this reality that he will be glorified in the future, this motivates him to endure hardship now. Paul and the other apostles had their lives in danger all of the time. They were always at peril it seemed. Humanly speaking, at any hour his life was on the line. He was constantly in situations that could result in his flame being put out. Literally, he says, I, I die daily. He's not, he's not really talking about his war against his flesh and the daily battle against sin, though it is true that that exists for the Christian. And it is true that Paul also has to deny himself. He has to deny himself in order to put himself in all of these situations where he's facing deep suffering. But he's not speaking of something figurative here, but something much more literal. He's saying, on a daily basis, I face the reality of death. Or I, I live my death every day. And he does that with those he is ministering to in mind even. And in verse 31, he uses the language for swearing an oath. And he says, I protest, brothers. That's a very strong oath language. He has pride in them, which he has in Jesus Christ the Lord. In other words, he's not boasting in himself when he says these things. He's not telling them of these dangerous situations and these sufferings that he's been putting himself in to talk about himself, to boast in himself. He's saying it out of love for them and because his boast is really in Christ. And this is what, and because Christ has resurrected, he is willing to go through these things for the sake of God's glory and for their sake as well too. He said elsewhere in this letter, two times already, that his boast and every Christian's boast is Christ, Christ and him crucified. He's bringing all this up, not to brag on himself, but to show that the resurrection justifies the life that he's endured. And most of us, because we live in this comfortable world, we try to figure out just what it is that we can do every day to elevate our happiness. What it is that we can do every day to elevate our satisfaction. What it is that we can do to fulfill our desires. Sometimes, you know, a cultural or nominal Christianity could even satisfy those, those desires. The apostle, though, he's very clear. He was every day preoccupied with his imminent death. And for him, it's very clear. Why do this if there is no resurrection? 
Why subject myself to this if there is no resurrection? He's in danger from the very moment of his conversion. Do you remember that? First, they, they wanted to kill him as soon as he became a believer. They wanted to kill him in Damascus. And he had to have, his friends had to let him down in a basket over the wall so that he could escape. And then from then on, it was just a matter of escaping death. It seems like everywhere he went. Chapter 9 goes on to say that in, in Acts, tells us that the Jews from the very outset were plotting his death. He was sent back to Tarsus by Jerusalem, by the Jerusalem disciples, because even the Greeks wanted to kill him a few verses later, we read. But let's just let the apostle explain this himself, rather than me simply telling you. Turn over to 2 Corinthians, just a few pages to the right. We'll be in chapter 4. Here you get a little taste of what he endured. This is him defending his apostolic ministry to, again, the Corinthian church. And in verse 8, he says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. He's talking about the suffering he endures as a Christian. But how that suffering doesn't break him. There's something better, actually. There's someone sustaining him through it. And then in verse 10, Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. So there you have baptism and resurrection again, don't you? That union we share with Christ displays itself in how we live. The body and the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest, manifested in our bodies. Same thing he's been talking about. And, and it gives us reason to put ourselves in danger for the sake of Christ. And in other words, you know, I put my life on the line to die for the cause of Christ in order that I might manifest his life. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That could be the mindset, it should be the mindset of every believer as well. Uh, verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Same thing is repeated again. Essentially, he risks death on a regular basis, all for the glory of Christ. Verse 12 says it another way, abbreviated. He says, death works in us so that life can work in you. And then he provides the reason as to why he lived this dangerous life. Why it was necessary. Verse 13 in chapter 4. Since then we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believe. And then he borrows this from Psalm 116. I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. The reason, the point, is the reason that he was in so much trouble is because he speaks the truth. If we were to find ourselves in the same kind of trouble today, church, it will be because we are speaking the truth. I just, this past week, a couple of brothers from our congregation just went to a local public high school, and they shared the gospel there. And I heard that not everyone was happy about that. Because when you speak the truth, you put a target on yourself. People don't love the truth. People who don't love God don't love the truth, that is. It puts them in danger. He lived the way that he lived because he knew there was a resurrection of believers. That's his motivation. That's and that, that they also will be resurrected as well. It reorientates everything for the Apostle Paul. It makes it so that he can endure, so that he doesn't lose heart in the face of danger. It makes it so that he's able to view the suffering he goes through now as a light and momentary affliction in comparison to the weight of glory that is awaiting him. That's what it goes, goes on to say after verse 14. What is, an, what is that eternal weight of glory there mentioned in verse 17? It's the new creation. It's the resurrection of the body. This motivated them, him. This helped him to be able to endure suffering and living a life of danger. This is why he does what he does. This is why he puts his life on the line. This is why he's willing to die if need be. These things motivate us. They fuel us. Gordon Fee in his commentary here says, Thus, everything's Christian do as Christians and especially the labors of an apostle, are an absurdity if there is no resurrection. That's his argument, really. Why put myself in danger? Why should any of us put ourselves in danger if there is no resurrection? But the lives that we live, are, are when we do put ourselves in danger, when we do put ourselves to be ridiculed or even worse, it's a testimony to the reality of the resurrection. It's a defense of the resurrection because we have confidence knowing that we will be resurrected. 
One more list from the Apostle Paul. He likes doing lists in, in the, these letters. Uh, he's describing the dangerous life worth living. Look at chapter 6, then verse 4. Here he says, But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Skip down to verse 8. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We understand, I think, what Paul means when he says, I die daily. He's, he's speaking about this life that he lived that was able to be fueled and motivated by the fact that there was a resurrection awaiting him and whenever God determined the end to be. That's the only way he's able to do this. Why? It's the only way we are able to do it. Why would we be willing, be willing to put ourselves in danger if there is no future hope? We wouldn't. And that's the point. We'd be fools if we did and there was no resurrection. But there is a resurrection. And so facing deep situations of suffering is possible and justifiably rational and sane. He continues his defense in verse 32. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. There he makes the point that what he endured in Ephesus wouldn't be worth it, humanly speaking, if there was no resurrection. Now, it's possible that the saints in Corinth could, would know exactly what the Apostle Paul is speaking of here. For us, it's a little bit rough, uh, a little bit of ambiguity. He, was he literally put in the arena to defend himself against lions and wolves, these, these beasts in Ephesus? The Romans would do that, but Paul's Roman citizenship should prevent that from happening, or it should have pre prevented him from being in a situation like that. Sometimes a person could be put in the arena with a wild animal and have a weapon so as to like put on an entertainment, an entertaining show for those who are watching. Um, perhaps he found himself in a situation like that. Or maybe this could be a reference to what he endured in Acts 19 when, certain, when a certain silversmith got the city into a riot over the apostles preaching and teaching. Or look at verse 9 in chapter 16. It's on the same page for me in my Bible. If you look at verse 9, or let's start at verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened, opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So perhaps these beasts in Ephesus are the adversaries he mentions here. Perhaps it was the intense, wild riot that he was in the middle of, as described in Acts 19. Perhaps he was placed with, in, in the arena with wild animals and was kept alive through a work of God's providential doings, kind of like Daniel was in the lion's den. We don't know for sure, but either way, that doesn't change the point, does it? He's saying that there is no human level at which it makes sense for him to live this way if there is no resurrection. Humanly speaking, if we lack a future hope, well then why would you put yourself in a situation over following Christ? He's wanting to take the Corinthians down from their lofty theology of glory platforms to help them see that right now isn't the best it will be. There is a future hope for the resurrection of our bodies. And the reality that Christ is risen, which is the means by which we are willing to suffer and do suffer here in this age. And then he really brings the argument down to a human level. He argues in such a way that the, a consistent atheist today might argue. He says, if this life is all there is, the apostle says, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If, if this life is really all that there is, and it doesn't have eternal consequence, if there's no resurrection, then there's no point really in following the law of God, even if you're, even if you're a Christian, if there's no resurrection, because then you know, there's no forgiveness of your sins. If this life is all that there is, why would you spend it? Why would you spend all that you have suffering at any capacity, let alone the capacity which the apostle suffered? If the dead are not raised, why wouldn't we just pursue lives of pleasure? Why shouldn't our lives be defined by partying and excess if that is the case? Well, Paul's point is that he is not behaving irrationally. It's rather that his life of suffering is an argument defending the reality of the resurrection. He quotes from Isaiah here, this, this, this passage that he says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He's actually quoting from the book of Isaiah. This isn't the formula that we saw in Ecclesiastes. You might be thinking it was there because it sounds similar and we were just in Ecclesiastes recently. Um, 
If you remember there, Kohelet or Solomon, he makes the point that we should eat, drink, and be joyful under the sun. And so it's not a depressing reality in Ecclesiastes. It's a, real, it's a realization that God is sovereign and in control. So a Christian knowing this can have joy no matter what's going on. But in Isaiah and here in Corinth, that's not the point. There's that extra addition added onto it for tomorrow we die. Here it's judgment. It's a call to wake up and be consistent. What Paul is doing is he's reminding us that he is not only seeing the benefits that he can gain in this life, it's not only what he can gain now, humanly speaking, but he's also looking to the benefits that have the life to come. Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to think about this, to connect the dots, to consider the ways in which they're seeing his actions. They know the apostles have been suffering, but they haven't recognized that Paul's suffering actually implies the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, well, then this life of mine might as well be all about pleasure, all about partying and self-fulfillment. You might as well live at the expense of everyone else around you. And to be clear, people do live like that, but not people who know there is a resurrection to come. Uh, Paul endures all of this, all of the suffering and this hardship because the dead are going to be raised. As Jim Elliott has famously written, a missionary who gave up his life for the cause of spreading Christ to people who do not know Jesus yet, Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. A suffering, being in danger over Christianity, it makes no sense if this life is all there is. But enduring the most extreme suffering is, is imaginable, and it is worth it for the sake of Christ if there is indeed a resurrection of the dead. And the apostle went through some of the most extreme examples himself. His willingness to endure these things was only rational because the resurrection is true. And therefore his very life and others who are resurrection-minded are themselves an argument for the resurrection. You, you yourself, if you live in the manner that the Apostle Paul did, devoted to the Lord, willing to do what the Lord commands you, willing to suffer for Christ's sake, your life is an argument for the resurrection. Again, Paul isn't urging them to let their thinking influence their living. That was their mistake, even. They thought there was no resurrection and their lives needed correcting. The Apostle is saying, your thinking will influence your living. And he's helping them, to, to them and us to think rightly. If you see a world beyond this one, if you see that there will be a life of resurrection after you die, if you think, and the consummation of Christ's kingdom, if you think that, then your thinking will affect the way that you live. You will willingly, even if it causes you to die every day, to be in danger every hour, you'll be willing to do that for the sake of what you stand to gain. It's all worth it. Whatever is sacrificed here is worth it. That's his, that's his point. And finally, at verse 33 and 34, the apostle addresses their faulty thinking. This is where their thinking has gotten them. So beginning at verse 33, he warns them, Do not be deceived. That's a familiar refrain in scripture, isn't it? Do not be deceived. It's a common exhortation. In Galatians 6, it's do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. That applies here, I would think, as well, right? They are sowing unfaithfulness and immorality and bad doctrine, and look what they're reaping. They're reaping death. They're reaping chastisement and rebuke now from the Apostle Paul. Uh, James encourages fellow believers to not be deceived, but probably most well-known, the Apostle has already used this expression for warning the church in Corinth. It was back in chapter 6, and the context here is similar as it is to there. There he warns the Corinthians that a person who has truly been united to Christ doesn't live a life that is defined by sin. That all these categories which people are identified by, such were some of them. And they are no longer these things because Christ has made them a new creation. And then he says, you know, do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of life. Here in chapter 15, the Corinthians had been deceived to think that there is no resurrection. And how this has came about, well, apparently, they've been keeping bad company. Bad company ruins good morals, is what we read. Pastor Kim Riddlebarger in his commentary notes, the escalator of civic righteousness usually runs down, not up. Usually, associating with people who are immoral is going to contribute to, be, to you becoming immoral rather than they becoming more holy. Usually that's the case. It's a general truism. It's proverbial wisdom. Note Proverbs 13, 20. It says the same thing. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. 
It's not a guarantee that it's always the case, but it's generally true. I mean, in some ways, you can't avoid it, right? You can't control who you work with necessarily. You can't regulate who your neighbors are. Uh, some brothers and sisters have to endure bad company to make a living. I understand that. Uh, that is in part, by the way, why we encourage you all to get your children out of public schools. They're being discipled there eight hours a day, not just from the teachers, but from fellow students who grew up in secular homes. It's a recipe for disaster. Don't be deceived, saints. Bad company will ruin good morals. Conversely, it's in part why we want to encourage regular church-wide gathering. Not that we're all perfect here or anything, but generally speaking, our goal here is to glorify God and to rest in Christ. And the instruction of coming together as the church so that we build each other up in love, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. And so there's Sunday school for everyone. And then one service where we all come together under the word of God. We encourage staying around after the service, having that good company. Then you can, then you can continue to worship again with the saints a few hours later uh, and with prayer and more teaching. Make use of these things, brothers and sisters. Make use of them. And you have to ask yourself, why are you not? You're making time for bad company instead, even if that's in the form of entertainment or social media, perhaps. In the middle of the week, there are small groups. Many congregations even just have a midweek service for the whole congregation to gather. It's wonderful. It's a, it's a blessing. Because often in the world, day to day, we may find ourselves in, quote, bad company. And so coming together with the church, with the family of God, which is bigger than just your immediate family, contributes to your growth. A growth in the right direction, growth Christward. But it's a, it's a means of grace. And the means of grace are employed when we're gathered and meeting together. Our Lord, He was morally superior to everyone else. And so He was forced by nature to be around people who are less morally pure than Himself. But none of us are Jesus. Just because Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners doesn't mean that is our responsibility to do the exact same thing in the exact same way. None of us have the moral capability that Jesus himself had. And the fact for the matter is that because of our human nature, because of our sinful propensities, we are far more likely to fall to the level of those whom we associate with rather than calling them up to the moral standard we live by. They, they would need to be regenerated they would need to be saved in order for that to happen, in order for them to be called up, typically speaking. So be careful who you associate with. That's what the apostle is saying here. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful what you watch. Be careful what you read. Be careful with how you scroll. It impacts you. Don't be deceived. And the Corinthians, they've, they've been corrupted this is actually how Paul begins this discussion. There's this error that's floating around in the Corinthian church. And look what Paul says back at verse 12 in chapter 15. He says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Well, there's the bad company. And what this bad company is doing is they're teaching, they're talking, they're raising questions that may sound innocent, such as, well, maybe the dead aren't raised. How can some of you say there's a resurrection of the dead? Has anybody seen someone resurrected from the dead? Well, Paul did give the, the offense of Jesus being resurrected from the dead, right? And the, the many witnesses that saw him. And Paul is saying, don't be deceived by this kind of rhetoric. Your thinking doesn't remain in your mind. This is, these are the same kinds of mantras that we see in, quote, progressive Christianity today. This group of professing Christians who want to retain the name Christianity and then yet quote, deconstruct their faith. They call into question everything that is believed to be true, and yet they still want to retain the name of Christ. If you're subjecting yourself to error, and we need to be careful here, we need to be careful about who we're associating with. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you're subjecting yourself to error, it will at some point erode at the life of God in your soul. I, it can at some point become what dominates your belief. This is happening in our culture right before our eyes. As a matter of fact, if we think culturally, and maybe not you know, within the church, why is it that our world somehow seems to think that there's multiple genders now? When 20 years ago, that's a silly thing. We never would have thought that. Why do, why do we even sometimes think that a, a child can't be identified as either male or female? All this, the transgenderism, even all, I tell you, even all of the rhetoric that we have about COVID and everything, it, it's, 
bad company corrupts good morals. They want to keep these messages in front of us. There's Pride Month every July now so that you are reminded that this is a normal and good thing. Well, no, it's not. It's not a normal and good thing. You have to be conformed to the Word of God, friends. Not conformed to what CNN says. Not conformed to what the world says. Bad company corrupts good morals. There's so many applications for this. We don't have the time for all of that. Um, the next thing, in verse 34, Paul says, Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Four things, one, with this, of course. Wake up from your drunken stupor. That's pretty plain. He's encouraging them to wake up. He wants them to come to their senses, sober up. They are listening to these people who are saying there's no resurrection, and it's like they are in this stupor, and they just need to snap out of it. And notice, this is just assumed. It's what, quote, is as is right. He doesn't provide some rational discourse here. He's not expecting too much from them in saying this. Christians should believe in the resurrection. That is plain. That is basic. And if there is an influence in our life that is causing us in some way to reject that, or any principal Christian doctrine for that matter, we need to wake up. We need to stop being influenced that way. We are to be spirit-led, John 14, 26, not led by those who reject gospel truths. And you've got to think, most evangelical churches today would not like to have the Apostle Paul as their pastor, right? Uh, so many churches today are satisfied with looking at the world and using what the, world, the world's means to attract people. And the Apostle Paul is just plain. He's like, stop it. And that's actually what he says next. Wake up from your drunken stupor and stop sinning. Might as well just stop right there. It's that, it's that plain. It's that simple. Just stop sinning. Stop engaging with sin. Stop letting these influences that are opposed to Christ impact you so that you become like them. As a general principle, this is true, of course. Remember what he tells the woman caught in adultery? Go and sin no more. Stop sinning, in other words. But what is it that the apostle is getting at here? What does, he mean, what does he mean by saying, stop sinning here? Well, repent, for one, right? Repent from your sins here. Repent from, but specifically, repent from what you're believing. Uh, what's in view in the context here, though, is the questioning of the future resurrection of believers. And the apostle's response is very simple. A child can understand it. It's just stop. He needs to deal with them like children because they're behaving as such. So stop sinning. Stop entertaining the thoughts of those who deny the resurrection. And this is a good word for us because we live in a culture that just hates dogma. A culture that basically thinks the very worst thing we can do is be certain about anything. And so you have professing Christians today that will entertain all kinds of doubts about pillar truths of the faith. I'm not speaking about debatable things, but unnegotiable things things in the same category as the resurrection. And because people are so scared of offending and being offended, all kinds of foolishness is allowed. And we, we coddle people in their unbelief when that happens. And the Apostle Paul is just like, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop sinning by allowing all these heresies to persist. Just knock it off. And then he brings what is the most serious indictment that he's made so far. And so he says, for some have no knowledge of God. What's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about those people in Corinth who are denying that there is a future resurrection for believers. Gordon Fee says that this is the ultimate put-down for those who are taking the church down this current course or direction. This is a put-down here. He's, again, it's an ad hominem attack. He's going after the person, not their argument. And so the apostle says, stop sinning. And the reason you need to stop sinning, or the reason you need to stop is because there are some people among you who have no knowledge of God. In other words, there are some people among you who don't know God. There are some people who are teaching you, who are being impactful. And the apostle's point is that these people aren't saved. And the Corinthians are so full of themselves, they're so super spiritual that they don't seem to notice it. This is an indictment upon the church, friends. And the issue still exists for us today as well. It's a sobering thought. There are people, and I'm not focusing necessarily on our church here specifically, but I'm sure it's true in some regard, but I'm thinking of the church as a whole across the world. It's sobering that there are professing believers who listen to the same sermons as us. They sing the same songs as us. They give to the same missionary work as us, and yet they do not know God. Yet people are being coddled in their unbelief. It's a sobering thought. 
there are goats among the sheep. And at some point, we just need to realize that the Lord will on the last day sort all that out. But in so much as it's up to us to notice it, we need to. That's what he's saying here. So we need to stop sinning. Bad company corrupts good morals. And then the apostle is just very clear to end this up. He says he's saying this to their shame. They shouldn't be letting this go on. Again, he, not a popular pastor today. Who wants to make their congregation feel shame? Uh, who, in, who in America wants to be known for shaming someone else? I mean, you get blasted on the internet, called a Karen or, or for whatever it is for that. It's, it's, it's unthinkable. But yet, that's his point here. He's saying this to their shame. He's wanting them to wake up. They shouldn't be letting this false teaching become prevalent in their church. And it's to their shame. They need to wake up. They should know better. They should be embarrassed for allowing this to go on. So you see, the Apostle Paul is more than willing to say what needed to be said. How come? Why is that? Well, it's because the future matters. The resurrection matters. This is not just something that Christians can debate over. This is something that is clear. It's a pillar of the faith. And we need to take these things seriously. He says these things to their shame. We can't entertain ideas of no resurrection. It's central to the gospel. What we believe about the resurrection impacts our daily life. What we believe about all theology impacts our daily life. Our hope, our joy in this life, it all flows out of what we believe. Do we have a knowledge of God? A right and true knowledge? If so, praise the Lord. It's a gift from Him. And that will impact how you live. Don't shipwreck your faith thinking otherwise, though. Don't be deceived, as the Apostle warns us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are perfect in every way. And we are glad that you are sometimes hard with us, Lord, for we know that our hearts are often hard. And if not for your sovereign, merciful grace, uh, they would have remained remained hard in rebellion to you. But we thank you, Lord, for the baptism of the Spirit, which precedes our future bodily resurrection. And we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to cling to these gospel truths as every benefit in Christ is attached to those realities. We pray that you'd help us have a good doctrine of the sacrament or the ordinance of baptism as well, as we know that it conveys these truths too, Lord. And so help us, God, to think about what your word says and help us, Lord, to to be discerning, to know error when we see it. Help us to be able to spot that which is almost correct from that which is correct. And we depend upon you, Lord God, to give us such understanding. And we know our limitations, but we know that you are limitless. And so to you be all glory and praise. May you be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen.